Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. We are just, again, going to introduce all of our speakers, and just a bonus, we do have Dr. Walter, who's also here. He's going to be here later and throughout the rest of the day. We're so grateful to all of these physicians for taking the time. So we've got Dr. Reichstein and Dr. Scheffler, uh, Dr. Dr. Hovland, and then, of course, Dr. Walter. So um, Dr. David Reichstein, let me just briefly introduce him, is an ocular oncologist who studied at Will's Eye Hospital and is here from Tennessee Retina, our host. Dr. Amy Scheffler is an ocular oncologist and a renowned eye cancer researcher from Houston Retina. She'll be joining us virtually as our first presenter. Dr. Peter Hovland, who specializes in vitreoretinal disease and surgery and ophthalmology, is here with us in person from Colorado Retina. And then, of course, Dr. Walter is here from Hartford uh, Hospital, and he is an ophthalmologist there, and he's going to be speaking to us as well as part of the discussion around standards of care in uveal melanoma. So thank you guys for all being here. Um, just so that you guys know how things are going to go today, we're going to have a, a various kind of segmented presentation. So these guys are all going to present a little bit at a time. Um, and we're going to, sorry, I forgot I didn't need this mic. Uh, we're going to have them present and then we're going to have a, a little bit of time if possible for Q&A. But if we don't have a ton of time, just keep in mind, we do have a jam-packed presentation. Still give us your questions and we'll do our best to give those to the doctors later if needed. So thank you again for being here. First up um, in our slides, we can pull over to Dr. Amy Scheffler. Amy? Hi, Amy. Hi, everyone. Are we doing okay, technically? We're doing great. Perfect, awesome. All right, well, so glad to be here. Thank you so much to everyone um, at Acure Insight for having me. Thank you to David for organizing. Thank you to everyone in the audience for spending their Saturday morning tuning in and joining us to talk about all these important topics. Um, I have just a couple of slides for you all this morning to kind of kick us off. Um, and then, um, you know, I think my other panelists will kind of get into it and then um, hopefully it'll all kind of um, weave together nicely. So for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Amy Scheffler. I live in Houston, Texas, where I practice ocular oncology full time. Um, next slide. Um, I've been here for 10 years and I uh, lived in Miami, Florida before that. Um, and these are my disclosures, um, none of which are relevant um, to anything I'm gonna talk about today. Next slide. Okay. So I'm gonna talk a little bit, um, just really briefly this morning about um, tumor size, sorry about that, tumor size and um, prognosis and um, the sort of general schemes that we use these days to help um, help us take care of patients and kind of judge um, kind of the, 
aggressiveness of the tumors that we see. So this is a little diagram from um, 1982 um, from the journal Human Pathology, so from a really long time ago. Um, and this is a paper that was published by Lorenz Zimmerman, who many consider to be the father of um, eye pathology. And what this uh, graph in this paper that he published showed um, was that um, the uveal melanomas that he was seeing um, at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology at the NIH at that time could be stratified in terms of patient survival based on the size of the tumor. So you can see that, you know, along the x-axis as patients survived, let's say, five years, the patients who had presented with small tumors, about 80% of them were alive. The patients with medium tumors, let's say about 70% of them were alive. And the patients with large tumors, you know, 50% or so. And then as the years go by, those curves gently um, face downward, um, but are stratified more or less by size. But what you can see is that, you know, in this kind of rudimentary work he was doing back in the 80s, um, even the curve for the small tumors is not exactly a perfect fit. In other words, he wasn't able to identify a straight line across of, you know, who are the patients who have a hundred percent chance um, of surviving. But he kind of understood that, okay, the bigger the tumor is at the time of presentation, the more likely it is um, that the patient will die of metastatic disease. Uh, next slide. And then what happened as time went by was that in the mid 1980s, all the way up to the early 2000s, um, was the era of what's called the Collaborative Ocular Melanoma Study. And this was a multi-center study with 44 sites across the U.S. and Canada, which was really answering many of the questions that we had about this disease at the time, like, you know, which is better for patient survival, having a nucleation or having radiation and critical questions like that. And what this uh, very large multi-center, uh, multi-step study did was divide patients into three size categories, small tumors, medium tumors, and large tumors. As many of my colleagues like to say, we're not geniuses, not oncology, we're just small, medium, and large, like, you know, burgers at McDonald's. So the small tumors in this study um, were assigned to the following sizes that you see here on the slide. So small melanomas in the study had a height of somewhere between one and 2.5 millimeters. Medium tumors were somewhere between 2.5 and 10 and large melanomas were greater than 10 millimeters in height. And then there were also requirements for the base of the tumor, um, which you see listed here. The, the criteria for the study actually changed over time um, a couple of years and they, they changed the apical height from, for the medium category from three to 2.5 because they were trying to get more patients in the study. And so there were all sorts of adjustments along the way, but this was where it landed. At the time of the COMS, the, the, the prevailing wisdom among ocular oncologist was that the height was actually more important than the base. And so there was really more emphasis placed on this in the study. We know that not to be true anymore, but this was really how, how they broke down. Um, and to a large degree, these, these categories um, really stood for a long time in terms of our understanding of um, how do we break these up and think about them when patients come to see us in the office and also what's the likelihood of mortality based on these categories. And then next slide, you know, because, um, clinicians are always trying to sort of reinvent things and try to get better. The most recent iteration of the way we think about size um, is what's called the TNM classification. So this is a classification that's used actually across um, cancer medicine um, in the US and it's um, spearheaded by a committee called the American Joint Cancer Committee, which is sort of a multi-center committee, national committee that assigns size categories for different cancers um, based on different committees and different subspecialties. So the latest edition of this is the seventh edition, and this was spearheaded by a clinician, um, an oncologist named Paul Finger in New York City. 
And essentially what he did along with his colleagues was come up with different size categories um, that are listed here on the slide. Um, and this, these categories are based on several things and you can click forward a couple of clicks. So it's based on thickness of the tumor, just as the CMS um, classification was. It's based on um, ciliary body involvement, which we've known for many, many years portends a worse prognosis. And it's based on extraocular extension as well. Also another pathologic feature that we know um, can be associated with more aggressive disease and you can click forward. So you see um, all of these different features kind of embedded in this classification. Now you can see, looking at the slide, this is a very complicated classification. There's many, many, many subcategories and it requires that the clinician measure the tumor down to the 10th of a millimeter, which is something that is difficult to do in a reproducible way in many ways. And so you could see there, there's the possibility for a lot of kind of variation with this, with this criteria. And then what you do is you take what's called the T stage, which is the tumor stage, meaning where the patient is assigned in this category, uh, click forward for me. And you then use the information about whether the patient has um, local metastases, meaning spread of disease to the lymph nodes, as well as distant metastases. And then you assign them a tumor stage, one, two, three, or four, which corresponds more to the staging that all of you are familiar with, with more common cancers. The thing is, this doesn't really work that well for you melanoma because as everyone knows, um, regional lymph node metastases are not that common in this disease. And the vast majority of our patients, close to 99% of them do not have metastases at the time of presentation to us. So the, the staging system doesn't exactly work that well for this disease, but this is how it works. So the majority of our patients are stage one, two, or three at the time of presentation. And you take that T stage and you plug it into this um, into this chart, and that's how you come up with the with the one, two, three, or four classification. And if you click forward, um, a couple of clinicians around the country have now kind of gone back and looked at their data of their patients and created stages for their patients using this classification, and then looked at, okay, does this classification help us predict what is the likelihood that patients will pass away of this disease? And roughly, more or less, um, it does work, and it actually looks pretty similar to Dr. Zimmerman's data from the 1980s, which is to say that if you break it up into stage one, two, and three, and you look at the probability of death as the years go by, they do kind of um, stratify out into those three groups. But even the lowest stage, you know, does not have 100% survival, and even the highest stage, you know, does not have the steepest curve. So it's not it's not truly a perfect fit. And part of this is because those measurements are difficult to do, as I mentioned, and the and the and the staging system is very complex one step forward. Um, but the thing is, I think in reality, what it's important to understand um, for clinicians and for patients is that what really drives tumor biology and what the likelihood is that our patients will um, develop aggressive disease and develop metastatic disease and potentially pass away from this tumor is really the underlying genetics in the tumor. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this work, um, which started um, in Bill Harbor's lab many years ago in WashU and then continued in Miami and is now a, a large multi-center effort um, that many of us are involved in. And essentially what really drives the biology of these tumors is what happens to the genes deep in the cells in these tumors. And so if patients have what's called a class one genotype, they have um, really a very high percentage chance of having disease that has not spread to the liver and other organs. And if they have class two disease, um, the mortality rates are much, much higher um, even within the first couple of years after diagnosis. So behind those size categories, what really drives how big your tumor is, is what is the genetic biology of the tumor um, from the time that it starts developing? Next slide. Um, and then the last thing I'm gonna talk about is 
kind of bouncing from these size um, size details and information about the size of tumors is, you know, what do we do with this information in terms of understanding how worried we are about patients' um, likelihood of getting metastatic disease and how we follow them moving forward after the time of local treatment. So this is what's called the um, NCCN guidelines, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network. And this is a another national effort that is run through um, various um, authorized cancer centers throughout the country. Um, and is used um, broadly in cancer medicine, including in much other, many more common other cancer types. And so what the folks on these um, committees do is they get together and they set guidelines um, that are used to help clinicians make decisions about how to take care of patients, national guidelines. They are more commonly adapted in more common cancers, to be honest, and they also... Um, to be honest, from a practical standpoint, are mostly used in the context of insurance companies um, knowing what guides them in terms of what they're required to pay for. And this is really how this plays out in reality for patients. The, the insurance companies use this to deny different imaging um, or, or treatment paradigms um, and point to this as ways to deny certain things. So after we meet a patient and we do surgery and we um, do a biopsy and we get information about patient's genetics or the size of their tumor, um, we're able to stratify them based on this um, schema into three groups, low risk, medium risk, and high risk. And you can click forward one click. And so if you have low risk disease, and these are patients who have a GEP of class 1A. That's that last uh, genetic classification that I showed you. Um, and I'm sure someone else today will get into details about what that means. Um, there are other ways of looking at uh, the chromosomes and the genes in these tumors uh, that I won't get into, um, and other ways of looking at the mutations or the misprints in the DNA that patients have. Or patients who have a T1 tumor, meaning that lowest stage in that AJCC classification that I showed you. So if on any of these paradigms, patients fit into a low risk category. The imaging moving forward that's recommended by the NCCN for these patients is to simply, quote, consider surveillance imaging, meaning you could think about looking at the patient's lungs or liver um, with um, screening tools like CT scans or MRI scans, but you're not required to. And so it is often the case that patients who fall into this category, their insurance companies will then later deny imaging on, on the basis of this of this recommendation. And then there are patients in a medium risk group who are either class 1B using the gene expression profiling classification or have other features like an SF3B1 mutation or T2 or T3 on the AGCC classification I talked about. And according to the NCCN, the recommendation for imaging for these patients is to consider imaging every six to 12 months for 10 years. And so this is a kind of a slightly more aggressive recommendation, but also fairly vague, which gives the insurance company some leeway also to deny um, imaging for these patients as well. You can click forward one click. And then finally, the high-risk patients are patients who have um, what we call class 2 disease, which is the most aggressive genetic subtype, um, or other chromosomal changes or mutations, including the BAP1 mutation, which is the most aggressive mutation we see in this disease. Um, or T4 disease. And the imaging recommendation um, is for these patients to have imaging every three to six months for the first five years, and then every six to 12 months until year 10. And I would say broadly, my experience has been that it's difficult for insurance companies to deny imaging for patients who are class two 
broadly, but they do try to get in the weeds in terms of telling us exactly what kind of imaging our patients can get. And there's not enough time to get into the details of that. But most of the time, the situation in which patients go up against these, um, these guidelines is in the context of insurance. And um, I'll stop there. Um, hopefully this will lead into the next talk um, and happy to answer any questions that anyone has. Um, can we cue my talk? I, I hope I, I sent it to Hannah right before this. First talk. There we go. Okay, well, uh, thanks for inviting me, Dave, and uh, good to be part of this. Um, uh, hopefully, we can direct this to provide you guys information that's relevant and give you perspective on the overall field. Having spoken to a number of, of, of patient groups, I find that uh, it's a diverse population. You all have different unique courses, different diagnoses even really. It all fits under the umbrella of uveal melanoma, but the specifics of each case is, is different. And so um, again, I just wanna, Dave asked me to cover the topic of proton therapy. So I'm just hopefully gonna boil it down to a, a simple model that you can take home with you and think about it. So your perspective, whether or not, how many people here have had proton therapy? Had one, two, how, how many people have had brachytherapy, the plaques? Yeah, that's typical, uh, a lot more of that. And um, how about a nucleation here? Anybody have any other sort of treatment of their primary? Okay, good. Well, let's, let's go into proton therapy, just so you know what it's about. And we're gonna come back to this later this afternoon when we talk about radiation side effects. Proton therapy is a form of radiation uh, treatment. I don't personally perform it. I've managed many patients who have received it. Uh, next slide, please. So this has been around for a little while, uh, since 1975. And it, it's uh, really only performed at a few centers around the country. It requires expensive equipment, uh, something called a cyclotron which uh, is a quite a large apparatus. <clears throat> and this um, accelerates protons extremely fast, almost to the speed of light. And, and they're aimed with electromagnets to a very precise target in the eye, the tumor, that is. And the idea is to create a very narrow beam of treatment and avoid healthy tissues. Um, the radiation source is external to the body and um, Protons are sometimes known as helium ions, and this fits under the general category of something as known as charged particle radiation. Next slide. So um, the way the treatment works is you've got a clinical assessment with a tumor size and location determined. And then uh, for the posterior tumors, uh, there is a surgical component where uh, these markers are placed on the eye uh, they're made out of um, a tantalum, uh, which allows you to do CTs or MRIs. And this is used to aim the beam. So you can see here in the cartoon, there's a circle on the outside of the eye, which represents the tumor that's inside. And it's surrounded by these tantalum markers. 
the lower picture shows the eye that's being transilluminated. So if you shine a bright light on the eye, you can see the shadow of the tumor through the wall of the eye. So this is actually looking at the outside of the eye as it's glowing, and the tumor will show uh, up as dark. This is an anterior tumor involving the ciliary body, and you can see how the rings are placed. The targeting of the therapy is to go inside the geometry that's created by those uh, markers. This, sometimes markers aren't needed if they're aiming at something at the iris. Uh, next slide, please. So the dose is, is given over several days. After the surgery, then the patient is, is seated uh, uh, in front of the beam. And in this case, you see this gentleman wearing a tie. And he has, he's actually biting onto a dental grip to, to keep his head still. And uh, they will aim the beam uh, exact, very precisely. They do have some safety mechanisms. If the eye moves, uh, the, the beam will shut off automatically. So the point is to deliver doses, what we call fractionated doses, over a period of days until you reach the total dose. Typically, this is five days of treatment. <laughs> the tie is strictly optional when you're being treated. And, and the patient, you can't see, he's smiling, but he's gripped very tightly there. So let's have the next slide, please. So how does this work? What's the difference about protons versus plaques? And I, there's this German word I can't really pronounce, Bremerstrahlung, I think. Um, and what it does, it's pretty unique about the way the protons enter the eye. So it's really about getting to the target and then no further. And the idea in physics is a lot like skipping a stone growing up. How many people have skipped stones around here? I mean, isn't that one of life's simple pleasures of skipping a stone? We know it goes ding, 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 and then it stops. And that's where the energy is delivered. So that's the maximal energy uh, at that point where it delivers. So it's amazing how they can do this. These radiation oncologists, they aim it, it but it passes through structures until it gets to the tumor. And, and that's important. Uh, next slide, please. So the good part about the proton therapy is when it hits that tumor, it directly damages it and physically actually destroys the tumor cells as well as the blood supply to the tumors, and it produces an inflammatory response, which is probably good in terms of destroying the tumor. Um, the side effects, however, which I, I have as bad, I guess you have to accept the good with the bad here, is that it can cause damage to structures as it passes through the eye. And typically, we think of the cornea, the lens, actually the conjunctiva, the eyelid, even if certain circumstances, the lacrimal gland. So these are side effects of therapy that, depending on the location of the tumor, you may have to deal with. Next slide. So we talk about protons versus plaques. About 90% of patients now are getting plaques. I think that was approximately what we saw here. Uh, they're, a little, they're different in terms of the radiation side effects. In fact, we're going to be talking about that more this afternoon. Um, in general, protons are more likely to affect your eyelids and cause cataracts. Protons therapies is better though. Some tumors are larger. You just can't be treated with plaque therapy and, and protons allow you to treat it with radiation and, and conserve the eye. Um, tumors that wrap around the optic nerve are 
harder to treat with plaques. There are some deeply notched plaques that can be used, but uh, protons are considered to be an acceptable way to treat these sorts of tumors. And then there's also tumors that have a little more complicated involvement, these anterior ones that involve the ciliary body that may be harder to address with plaque therapy. That's a brief overview of protons. <laughs> Any questions? I think Scott's going to talk about plaque now. All right. Thanks, Peter, for uh, getting us started here on radiotherapy for ocular melanoma. So uh, just waiting for my slides to come up. But while we begin, uh, my name is Scott Walter. I'm a uh, ocular oncologist and vitro-retinal surgeon. I practice in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and I'm currently the only ocular oncologist now in, Hart in, uh, in Connecticut. So taking care of a lot of patients up there in my local area as well as surrounding areas now that uh, there's no one uh, at Yale. Um, I trained with Bill Harbour uh, down at uh, Bascom Palmer. I'm sure some of you have heard that name before. Uh, I also trained with Miguel Matron and Prithvi Muthanjaya while I was at Duke. So I've had some really great mentors over the course of my uh, uh, training. Do we have the slides? <laughs> For those of you that don't know those names, it's as if he was, uh, he played football with Peyton Manning. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I think as we, as we indicated with our poll of the audience, plaque brachytherapy is kind of the uh, mainstay of treatment for the vast majority of our patients um, with um, ocular melanoma. Um, we, we've heard about some of the alternative treatments, such as uh, proton beam therapy and nucleation, and we'll be hearing later about some more, um, you know, newer therapies, which may um, uh, be good treatment options for uh, patients with smaller tumors. Um, but uh, basically, uh, you know, plaque brachytherapy is a team approach. It requires not only the ocular oncologist, but a whole team of radiation oncologists, radiation physicists working together um, to, to sort of bring everything together to effectively deliver the therapy um, to the patient. And so uh, a lot of this happens without the patient really uh, understanding what's going on because you've just been hit with this bombshell diagnosis and we're rushing to get the plaque uh, designed and uh, delivered as quickly as possible. Um, but I wanted to just take everyone through some of the steps that occur before we treat the patient and uh, during the actual, um, do you have a clicker there, uh, treatment itself. So we finally have slides. All right. So um, mainstay of treatment for most patients. Here are some of the other treatment options like we talked about. Here's our team here when I did my first plaque at Hartford Hospital about uh, five years ago. Um, so some of the steps uh, that occur with the radiation oncology and physicist uh, colleagues is to uh, perform what's called a brachytherapy simulation. And this is a, a three-dimensional simulation of the patient's eye and the patient's tumor so that we can specifically design our therapy uh, to treat that patient's tumor. So we begin, this is actually the patient I treated uh, uh, last week. He's a 32-year-old male who came in with this medium-sized um, uh, choroidal melanoma, um, and you can see here the fundus photo and the ultrasound images, which I acquired in my office, those get uh, sent off to the radiation 
uh, oncologist uh, and physicist, and they combine that with what's called a planning CT. And the CT provides three-dimensional imaging of the eye, which combines with these two-dimensional imaging modalities that we have in the eye clinic. And we put all three imaging modalities together to create this three-dimensional model of the patient's eye. Next, uh, the radiation physicist designs a plaque specifically for the patient's tumor. So, um, you know, one aspect that's important is where's the plaque going to be fixed to the eye? So, as you guys know, the plaque actually is outside of the eye. So, it has to be secured to the sclera, which is the white tissue that forms the wall of the eye. And we want to make sure that where we're securing it to the sclera is surgically feasible. So, that's really the first thing I look at when I look at these plans is, can I sew the plaque to the eye where it needs to be? So, uh, these suture coordinates uh, look good to me. Um, next, um, we have to actually load the plaque. So the plaque is like this gold shell, and on the inside of the shell are these little um, pockets or slots that can be loaded with radioactive seeds. And so this is a, a loading diagram which shows the uh, radiation um, uh, oncologist how to actually load the plaque. Um, and you can see here that some of the slots may be empty, some of the slots um, are full. In some cases, there will be different seed strengths, so you can intensity modulate some seeds so that they're hotter than other seeds if you want to really, um, uh, you know, adjust the dosimetry. And we'll talk a little bit about dosimetry, which is the actual um, three-dimensional prediction of the radiation field that's created by the plaque. So the most important thing uh, is to confirm that we have adequate coverage of the tumor volume plus a margin. And so that um, this, is, this is what's called a dose area histogram, okay? This is a complicated image, but I'm going to walk you through it so that you have a bit of a basic understanding of how we look at uh, the, the, uh, the simulation to make sure that it's going to be appropriate for each patient. So you can think of this as having three separate sections. There's kind of the lethal zone, which is a, a radiation dose of 85 gray or more, which we know is the, um, you know, required dose to kill a melanoma. Um, and then we have sort of a safe zone, which is a dose of less than 45 gray, which most of the ocular structures can tolerate a, a dose less than 45 gray. And then we've got this gray zone or toxic zone between 45 and 85 gray, where it's not necessarily lethal to, the, to all of the cells, but it may cause some tissue damage and toxicity. So um, what we want to do is ensure that our tumor is completely within the lethal zone. And so this is uh, looking at the tumor base and the tumor uh, plus a two millimeter margin around the tumor. So we want to have a little bit of a margin for error when we're treating patients, just in case the plaque is, it moves during the um, treatment or uh, if our localization is off by uh, a millimeter, uh, we have a little bit of a margin of error built in. Uh, so this is uh, showing us good tumor coverage of both the tumor base and the tumor plus a two millimeter margin around it. All of the tumor is going to be in that lethal um, dose range of 85 gray or more. But now let's look at what happens to the other ocular structures that are critical for vision. So the optic nerve is one important structure. That is the cable that actually sends all of the information from the eye to the brain. So if we fry that cable with the radiation, you're going to lose vision, um, be, even if the retina's intact, if the optic nerve that connects the eye to the brain gets damaged by the radiation, you're going to lose vision. So 
In this case, the simulation looks really good in terms of the optic nerve. 100% of the optic nerve is kind of in that safe zone, less than 45 gray. But now let's look at the macula. So the macula is the central portion of the retina, which is really important for vision because that's where our reading vision is um, and you know our ability to recognize faces, read fine print, thread a needle, do all of those kind of complicated visual tasks. So the macula is super important. And in this case, the tumor was kind of over here, and then the macula was in the middle, and the optic nerve was over there. So just as we expect, if we're you know frying the tumor with a really hot dose of radiation, you know the the optic nerve, which is furthest away, is going to have the least exposure to radiation. But the macula, which is right between the optic nerve and the tumor, is going to have some intermediate um, level of radiation exposure. So we can kind of break the macula curve down. Um, you know, as follows here, where we're seeing approximately, you know, 40% of the macula getting a really high dose of radiation, a little uh, less than 50% of the macula getting a potentially toxic dose between 45 and 85 gray, and then a minority of the macula getting less than, um, you know, 15%, um, uh, sorry, a, a small portion of the macula having uh, no um, uh, exposure to potential toxicity. So unfortunately, this patient is probably going to lose vision from radiation maculopathy or ischemia, lack of blood flow to the macula, macular edema, other radiation-related complications in the macula as opposed to the optic nerve. All right, so let's talk about the surgery itself, some of the surgical aspects. Uh, just a trigger warning here, there are some intraoperative photos, so if uh, anyone's uh, worried about seeing that. Uh, there will be some slides showing uh, patients that I've treated um, intraoperatively. We have scopolamine patches in the back if you need. All right. <laughs> so uh, first step in the surgery is to expose the area of interest. So how do we even get back there, right? So the, the conjunctiva is the kind of clear tissue or pink tissue on the surface of the eye, and we make this incision that's marked, um, you know, with dashed lines here, and the around the limbus, which is where the cornea meets the sclera. Um, so that's the first step. Then we isolate the rectus muscles. So there's four rectus muscles, medial, lateral, superior, and inferior, and we may isolate, you know, two or more of these muscles in order to, um, you know, give us something to hold on to to move the eye around while we're um, working. Um, and there are two additional muscles, the inferior and superior oblique muscles, which we usually don't... Um, um, uh, have to work around, but uh, depending on the location of the tumor, sometimes those muscles come into play. Um, sometimes, and actually I'd say most of the time, a, a muscle is temporarily released in the quadrant where the tumor is located in order to um, uh, get the plaque right where it needs to be on top of the tumor without a muscle in the way. So um, the way I like to do this is basically um, uh, as illustrated here, um, the um, uh, muscle is, in this case, the superior rectus, has been uh, temporarily released from its insertion, but it's still attached on what's called a hangback suture. So it's kind of loosely attached to its original insertion, and it, it just temporarily hangs back behind the eye so that we can get the plaque right there, um, you know, where it needs to be, and then when the plaque comes out, we're going to re reattach the muscle 
using that pre-placed suture. So this is kind of an elegant way of temporarily releasing a muscle uh, and then reattaching it at the conclusion of the procedure. But this is why a lot of patients will have double vision after um, the plaque brachytherapy surgery because that muscle takes some time to heal. Uh, but most of the time, uh, the, the muscle heals very nicely and the double vision resolves uh, within a couple of weeks after surgery. And if it doesn't, uh, we can address that with eye muscle exercises or rarely additional surgery to correct the strabismus. All right, so now let's go to the next key step in the procedure, which is localizing the plaque. So I think we saw earlier um, uh, an image of transillumination. So this is a really bright uh, light source that is shone through the pupil. And you can see that tumor shadow being created, um, you know, uh, where the tumor is um, uh, located. Uh, uh, so you can actually see outside of the eye, it's almost like a jack-o'-lantern here where you're seeing the projection of that dark tumor shadow. Next, um, I like to mark the tumor margins on the sclera with a marking pen so that we can kind of see where the tumor's located. Um, and then we're gonna place what's called a dummy plaque. So the dummy plaque doesn't have any radiation, but it's the same size as the actual radioactive plaque and it's got a hole in the middle. So we can actually see through the plaque to make sure that it's localized exactly where we want it to be over those um, you know, ink marks that we made on the sclera. So that's, you know, again, a second step in confirming that we've got the plaque exactly where it needs to be. And then um, you know, once we've um, created our suture coordinates, we'll release that dummy plaque and replace it with the active plaque, which you can see here you know, is a solid plaque you can't see through it, and it's got the radioactive seeds loaded on the inside surface. Yeah. Hello. Oh, we're, we're always a little worried because I don't know about you, but our patients are oftentimes awake during this procedure, and when we ask, "Can you can we can send in the dummy?" It just sounds weird. So, if you heard that when you were having your surgery, this is what it's all about. <laughs> Thanks, that's, that's a good point. Um, so, uh, you know, then what I like to do is actually confirm the plaque location with an ultrasound, which is performed intraoperatively. You guys have all had ultrasounds performed in the office, so you know what this is like. But you may not have seen an ultrasound that looks quite like this. You can see these kind of rays uh, of, uh, you know, darkness and light kind of um, uh, sh acoustic shadowing behind the tumor. Uh, which we don't see in the office. And the reason that's there is because we're actually seeing uh, the, the sound waves being reflected by the radioactive seeds, and that creates this kind of uh, cool effect that uh, confirms the localization of the uh, plaque um, outside of the eye, but well localized with respect to the tumor. And so here is just a, a video, I don't know if we can play it, uh, showing a dynamic ultrasound. Um, does anyone have the control there to hit play? Is it on this? Do you mind just hitting the play button there? Down at the bottom. just gives you a sense of what it looks like as we're kind of moving the probe around, confirming the localization of the uh, plaque. So, 
Then the uh, last step in the procedure, it's actually a two-part procedure. So there's the plaque implantation, which we just you know, talked about, and then there's a second surgery, uh, usually three or four days later, to remove the plaque. Um, and uh, this is a relatively quick procedure. Uh, the plaque is released from the sclera, returned to the radiation oncologist who inspects the plaque and confirms that all of the seeds um, uh, you know, came out with it, nothing is left behind. The muscle is then reattached to its insertion, and we close up the conjunctival incisions to um, you know, hopefully make the eye look um, uh, as close to normal as possible. And then, of course, there's all sorts of steps to confirm that we've removed all of the radioactive seeds from the uh, patient's eye, including you know, a Geiger counter and radiation physicist who comes by and uh, checks everything out. Um, so there's no radioactive material left in the body after the conclusion of the procedure, and there's no hardware left in the eye at the conclusion of the procedure. So it's a little bit different than brachytherapy for other um, uh, conditions like prostate cancer where the radioactive seeds are actually left in the body. It's a little bit different from proton beam therapy where some of the hardware, the tantalum rings, are permanently sewn to the eye. Uh, everything uh, radioactive, everything metallic is gone at the end of the procedure. Uh, and over the course of that three to five day uh, period where the plaque is on the eye, it has uh, cumulatively delivered a lethal dose of radiation to the tumor and hopefully we've uh, planned it such that we've minimized the toxicity to the surrounding ocular structures that are critical for vision. Scott, have you ever uh, taken a plaque out in the office? I have not. I'm fascinated by that concept. I heard that Tara McCannell does that, and I'd love to see how it's done. I did it once, and apparently it was an OSHA violation. <laughs> He's not allowed to do it again. Um, it would be nice, uh, convenient. On the other hand, I tell you, getting that muscle put back on, I use the microscope. I don't like double vision. Uh, it's a very precise reattachment procedure. We don't get paid to do it, actually. But uh, the end result is what it's all about. Um, and, and just to clarify one thing, I'm surprised how many times I get asked the question. We do not actually remove the eye to do the procedure and then put it back in. It's, as Scott showed, it's done very artfully. It, the difference between this and the proton surgery, uh, proton treatment is it requires a lot of skill. The eye anatomy is, has all kinds of features. Everyone's unique. Your orbits are different. Um, each procedure is unique. And just placing the sutures requires a lot of judgment. So it's technically a very challenging procedure, um, but it's also routine, frankly, uh, and when you have a, a team like you do or like most of us do. Yes. Okay. I know you guys can hear me. Okay, can the audience hear me? So can we, at this point, do we have time to run through a few questions before we end? I, I had two slides. Oh, you have two slides, show. sorry. Yeah. Step in the order, I thought you had already gone. I'm so I, sorry. I don't just shoot one-liners. Okay. But, um, can, is it possible to switch over to the HDMI? It's okay, I went to eat and apparently I missed a tiny key point in how this was going, so it's okay. Oh, 
how it's plugged in, yeah. If we can't show them, actually, it's not, it's not the biggest loss. It's not, <laughs> it's working. not working. Yeah, very good. Okay, so I, I am just going to shoot one-liners. The, um, <laughs> the conversation that I was going to have was um, about the use of uh, laser therapy alone um, uh, for, for the treatment of primary melanoma. And I'm glad to see that nobody in this room has actually had that because I would say that that's no longer really standard of care. There may, there may be a few tumors out there that we, we do nothing but laser them in the office. Um, I, as we've gone through and we learn about how these tumors grow and what really contributes to um, a bad prognosis, laser therapy seems to have gone uh, by the wayside and um, does not seem to be part of what we are uh, doing usually, but we can go ahead and take questions then. I, I do have a question specifically from that for the TTT. Is is there a reason um, why not to do the laser? Like, is it is it mostly just that most tumors at this point are found when they're too big for laser to stay effective for long? I, I can tell you my answer to that question, which is that um, the data on long-term laser therapy versus long-term enucleation versus proton therapy versus plaque-buggy therapy just isn't very good. Mm -hmm. And anecdotally, what, um, what I see on a semi-regular basis is people have been lasered elsewhere, and then the tumor grows, right? I have no problem, by the way, of going to the operating room, taking a biopsy of the tumor, looking at the GEP class or looking at the chromosomes and lasering it while you're in there. If that's what you're, if, if that's what we're doing, trying to stratify where the tumor is genetically or where the tumor is molecularly, then um, I think lasering it has a very good role in the operating room. But um, I think, you know, the more that we know about it, the more that we realize you got to bang it really hard in order to, uh, in order to get rid of it. So what I'm hearing is it's just not strong enough for most of the time to be long lasting in treating the tumor. It's hard to know. I inherited okay. about 60 uh, patients that were treated with diode laser when it was thought to be the way to go for smaller tumors. It's been estimated there's about a 15% failure rate. And indeed, okay. over the years, I've seen about 10 patients. It could be a, a really unique, like for someone who has a smaller tumor, it still could be an option to be discussed, but it needs to be thoroughly evaluated. Just like any, yeah, yeah. got to be thoroughly discussed. Um, you mentioned genetic testing um, and doing laser with genetic testing. So is, is plaque, and I think Scott probably touched on this, Dr. Walter, um, do you typically perform the genetic testing at the time of proton therapy or bra brachytherapy, or do you ever do it alone as, like you said, a diagnostic way to determine how to treat? I'll, I'll take that one. So my practice has evolved a little bit uh, over the last couple of years. I think. Um, a few years ago, um, I think the paradigm for me was always to, to biopsy and treat concurrently. Um, but, uh, and I, I still think that's the appropriate treatment paradigm for a medium or a large melanoma. Um, but for small melanomas, which uh, are a little bit harder to gauge their metastatic potential, I think it often makes sense to biopsy first um, and get more information before you make your treatment decision. 
And I think in the context of a genetically low-risk tumor, TTT, if it's going to be a vision you know, sparing um, yeah, say, uh, therapeutic spare option, may be a great initial management approach for a low-risk tumor uh, that would uh, otherwise um, you know, be treated with radiation that could lead to blindness. I think Scott and I are in complete agreement on that, actually. And, and I would say that my practice has also changed in a similar sort of time frame where, you know, we, we trained uh, not too, too long ago, but long enough that, see, that uh, biopsies were done concurrent with radiation, and that was pretty much it. Now we know that um, biopsies can really be done safely ahead of time to give us uh, quality and safe information about the tumor before we go ahead and treat it. So if it is a really small melanoma, remember it has to be small in order to um, take can laser. can we clarify small again? Small means in thickness, correct? Right, small in thickness. But I mean, if it's, if it's wide, it's tough to sit there in the operating room and laser the whole tumor um, and, and really get all, that laser, all those laser spots. So, um, and it has to be small enough so that you can get through the tumor down to the base of the tumor with the laser. Yeah, I think Dr. Murray gave a presentation about laser to very, very clearly state that it needs to be, I think, under two millimeters. It has to be under two millimeters and very, very small for laser to be effective in treating and also effective in saving vision. And it's, I think what I'm hearing is it's generally the idea that we want to we do the lesser amount of harm to the patient, to the eye, while, while still saving their prognosis and making sure that they're safe. Agree. I, I, oh, there's, your slides. <laughs> there's a role for a diode laser or TTT laser uh, sometimes as a, after the treatment with the plaque. Uh, to, if the tumor's not shrinking and it's causing visual effects, uh, a TTT could be done afterwards to shrink the tumor. I also completely agree with that, too. I think a, a lot of us will, will use at, you know, sort of adjuvant uh, transpupillary thermotherapy or diode laser on top of what we've done um, radioactively uh, to, to augment that, that treatment response. Yeah, okay. to, to dovetail on that, you know, remember when we're doing the plaque brachytherapy, the, the highest radiation dose is at the base of the tumor, okay? So that's the part of the tumor that gets the highest dose. The lowest dose is at the top or the apex of the tumor and the margins of the tumor. So we may see, um, you know, that the tumor is not responding to the initial therapy as quickly as we would like it to and hit it from the inside with laser because now you're kind of attacking it both from the outside and from the inside. Um, or if you have a recurrence along the margin of the tumor, that's where I think TTT uh, can play a role if there's just a small portion of the tumor that may have been undertreated with radiation. A TTT is a good way to... Uh, kind of do a touch-up. Okay. Um, so can I, can I add up, one comment we're kind of to short that, on time here. But um, how would you guys say, between the four of you, how would you guys say you approach when and, and why to enucleate the eye if needed? Because obviously standard of care 20, 50 years ago was only enucleate. Now we've changed. So it still happens. We have many in our audience who've had enucleation. What are maybe the top two or three reasons that you would say or there may be more, but um, for why a nucleation becomes necessary or is necessary as a primary treatment. Let's let Amy start. <laughs> um, okay, so can I, I'm gonna add one thing to the last um, set of questions, which is that I would say um, there's, 
adjuvant TTT or primary TTT, I think is one of those topics where there just is an agreement in the field. And as everyone was saying, there are not good studies sort of comparing um, TTT alone to brachytherapy or TTT in an adjuvant setting to no adjuvant therapy. So, you know, I'm sure many of the patients around the room have had variable types of treatment with respect to whether adjuvant TTT was used or not. And I think we really don't know the answer. So whether you've had that or haven't, it's 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 okay. There's different styles and different practices, and we really don't know the answer to exactly when or if it's necessary. And the other thing I would add to what Scott said is that I always explain to patients that I think um, there's a spectrum with radiation damage on one end of the spectrum and recurrences on the other. So the more radiation you give and the wider of an area you give your radiation in, the less likely you are to have recurrences, but the more likely you are to have vision loss from radiation-related damage. And on the other end of the spectrum, if you give much less radiation, you'll have less vision loss, but more likely of a higher likelihood of recurrences. So it's really like almost like a slide rule. And you know, some practices you'll find fall more on one end of the spectrum and some on the other, but it's all a balance. And there's, there's not really a perfect medium between the two. And then to answer the nucleation question. So as far um, as the, that final question, I know we were kind of backtracking to the previous question, but let's kind of go back to just to end, when does the nucleation become the right. standard of care for certain patients and, and why at this point? Does it ever, or do you guys not see that anymore? Right, no, so I would say that. Um, I do about 10 times a year, I'll do it. It's always a shame. It's usually an anterior tumor that's too large. So where is anterior in the eye? Can you yeah. explain? Come back at, at one o'clock, I'll tell you. No, uh, <laughs> ba basically, <laughs> They're, the small ones that are in the back of the eye, the patient notices because it affects their vision, and they're prompted to see some an eye doctor. But the ones that start in the front, I call it the corner of the eye. How can a round eye have a corner? But there is. There's a spot behind the iris way up in the front, and they can grow rather large, in fact, deceptively large. And when you first look at them, you don't realize how big they are, but then you realize, my goodness, uh, even if we did protons here, that eye will shrivel up and it'll go blind and be painful. And a nucleation is actually provides the same quality of life we've found, the COMS study. So it's a shock to tell someone who's just got new symptoms, I have a little blurriness and you say, I've got to remove your eye. And, uh, but I think most people get, get to it pretty quickly. They realize that's it. So that's one circumstance where we'll do it where the radiation dose will actually just damage the eye beyond repair. And it does happen. Um, the other is when the eye's been damaged by radiation and eventually, usually it's a, a pressure-related glaucoma or the eye's painful, doesn't see well. Those eyes have already been treated years earlier, but th th there's a role for removing those eyes as well. And then, so then, um, am I back? Okay. Um, so then the, I guess what I'm hearing is the, those are kind of the, if the radiation does too much damage, we're going to do a nucleation. If we think it's going to do too much damage, we're going to do a nucleation. And then are there any places in the eye, um, like on the optic nerve or by the myopa, where if, if it's already there and doing the proton beam again is going to damage the vision so much or it's too large, like is, is plaque or proton, does it have a limit for when it's effective versus when it's not? I, 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 I'm limited by... Um, what can actually be done, can actually be covered, right, by plaque. Um, and I don't typically uh, refer those 
um, patients for a proton beam, just a lot of times they, they can't get there, right? Because there are so few people uh, in the country who do it. In those cases where I know plaque is just not actually gonna cover the tumor, in those cases, I think primary nucleation is perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I think there's social factors. Uh, we, there's not a lot of ocular oncologists around the country. In Colorado, it's a thousand miles to the nearest one. And so I, I remember a guy from Wyoming who 500 miles away came down and I said, we could put a plaque on you or we could remove your eye. And he says, wait a sec, if you, if you remove my eye, does that mean I never have to come back here? <laughs> and I said, yes. And he goes, that's what I want. And it was a good choice for him. And uh, I think economically, we have to watch out going forward, you know, with tightening uh, economics. There's an argument to be made that nucleation is, is effective and it's much, much cheaper. Patients, you may wonder, quality of life, they, once it's over, they don't worry about their eye. And initially, the shock is there, the adjustment is there, but two, three years down the road, the quality of life is every bit as good as someone who's had a plaque who's worrying about recurrence or eye-related issues. So nucleation is considered an equivalent, and there might be forces that drive us to do more nucleations in the future, we'll have to see. Besides travel, the other issue is if a patient doesn't have insurance. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing to keep in mind. So thank you guys all. This was a very enlightening discussion. Uh, I think that, that we are to the end of our time for this session. And unfortunately, those of you here in person, we don't have much time for a break. So we are gonna just head right into our 11 o'clock session with Dr. Reichstein. So let's thank Dr. Hovland, Dr. Walter, Dr. Scheffler for being here. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.